Mira. Morning, everyone. It's good to be back with you again. And beginning a new series, uh, morning and evening, I'm going to be looking at some of the principles of faith. And I want to build it around the life and character of Joshua, one of the great characters of the Old Testament. I think often we talk about faith without talking about its implications and what it means and in what way it should affect us and affect our lives and our thinking. I often wonder, uh, I spend a lot of time talking to men, and I often wonder why men find it so difficult to to come to faith, Uh, whether it's because it's difficult to acknowledge that they have been wrong for years in the sense that they've decided at some point earlier not to come to faith, Um, And when you begin to talk to them personally and begin to recognize something of the gaps in their living, and then they begin to get honest with you and tell you some of the stories of their living, it's it's sometimes very difficult to know why they haven't come to trust in someone who loved them enough to die for them and who now lives in order to help them and, and bless them in their living. So I feel that for the next probably... 12 weeks or something like that, we should spend some time looking at the life of Joshua because his life is a real challenge to me, uh, particularly as I get a wee bit older, and and recognize that I have a responsibility before the Lord to continue to live by faith, not to live by sight, not to sort of judge things and what I see but to recognize that God has got far wider purposes than most of us realize in our living as we walk with him. Now Joshua's story, as far as the Bible is concerned, begins way back in Exodus 17. And there's a lot of uh, early lessons we could learn from studying his early life. But that's not my purpose. I want to start at one of the most famous incidents in his living. And we find it recorded as far as in the book of Numbers. Numbers is called Numbers because it deals with the census of the people of Israel. Very sensible name to call it Numbers rather than census. And we're going to read from Numbers 13.23 to the first 12 verses of chapter 14. And some of this you may well recognize. Uh, Just to put you in the picture, Moses has sent 12 spies into the land of Canaan. And he's instructed them to scout out the land and bring back a true report of what they see and also to bring back some of the fruit of the land. So we're going to start reading at verse 23 of Numbers 13. When they reached the valley of Eshcol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them along with some pomegranates and figs. That night, all the members, uh, there's something wrong here. We're going to read from verse 23 and read the rest of of chapter 13. So let me read on. That place was called the Valley of Eshcol, verse 24, because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. 
They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak, the giant, there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak the giant come from Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. Now we begin chapter 14, and I think we have that early on the uh, overhead. That night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua son of Nun and Caleb son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Then the next phrase is interesting. It's translated, their protection is gone. But the word actually means their shadows have fled from them. In other words, they're so scared. The shadows have fled from them, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them. But I will make you into a nation greater and stronger. Than they. If we go right back, and we're not going to, but if we go right back to the beginning of the book of Exodus, 
The first promise which God makes to Moses, apart from saying to him, I will be with you, is he said, I'm going to take you up unto a land which I'm going to give you, because I promised it to Abram and his descendants forever. And it is my desire and wish that you should be the generation that go up into the land and claim it because I am going to give it to you. He then repeats that promise to them in Exodus 13 and again in Exodus 33. So he had already said to the children of Israel, this land is your land because it's my land, because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And in spite of what you farmers here who are here today might think, the land doesn't belong to you. It's on loan to you for your lifetime until such times as it passed on to someone else. And it's interesting that God constantly reiterates this to the, the peoples to whom the word of God is written, that the earth is the Lord's, it is his to dispose of as he chooses. So he's confirmed this promise and reconfirmed it to the people of Israel. And their own lives, the fact that they're actually on the borders of Canaan as our story begins, their own lives demonstrate that the Lord has been working at his purpose. Because he brought them out from under the control of the greatest power on earth at that time. He brings them out from under the control of the land of Egypt. And they were just slaves. They had no training in warfare. And they didn't achieve their removal from Egypt by their own strength. They achieved it by obeying what God said to them. And he told them to slay a lamb and put his blood on the little doorposts. And when he saw the blood, he would pass over them. And the Passover feast, and if you've been in Israel, will know that it's still maintained until this day around our Easter time. The huge point of beginning for the nation and the point of release from their bondage. So then we come to to verse 23 of our reading in Romans 13. They went in and they proved that what God had said would be so, that it would be a land flowing with milk and honey. And they brought out out this huge clump of grapes and the various pomegranates and figs and carried it back as a demonstration of the fact that it was exactly the sort of land that God had said to them. And then verse 26 says, They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. And there they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land and then gave Moses this account. We went into the land of which you sent us and it does flow with milk and honey. Here's its fruit. In other words, they proved in their own experience as spies that what God had said about the land was absolutely true. But you'll notice that in the report, they go on to say this. And I think it begins with a but in the Bible you should notice. And you'll see in verse 28, But the people who live there are powerful. Their cities are fortified and very large. We saw descendants of Anak, who was a giant there. The Malachites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites live in the hill country, the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. In other words, they were giving a negative report of what they had seen. They came back with the positive. They had the proof in their hands with regards to the fruit of the land. But, and we always have a but, 
You know, I, I think for most of us, the but becomes the important thing. And to the men that I've spoken to over recent years, it's always the buts, you know. But I don't really want to believe it. Even though it's impossible for the church to exist today, if Jesus Christ has not risen from the dead, men will still say, I don't believe it. I only believe what I can see, which is a load of rubbish anyway, because air keeps you alive and you can't see it. And to say we only believe what we can see is just to, to beg the question. And the reality of what I want to speak about over these successive Sundays is just that you and I might recognize that the, the logical place to be is to accept by faith what God says, and the illogical place to be is to assume that I can't believe it because I can't see it. So these guys have brought back the proof of what God has said is true. But they say, there are big problems. I've got a big problem in believing that God wants to take us into this new country. He says, first of all, there are powerful people there. We have a real fear of man. That's another reason why men don't come to faith, incidentally. They're afraid of what their mates are going to say. You don't believe all that stuff, as my friend Frank Foster used to say to me. And I used to say to him every day, he said, I do, and I still do, Frank. And it's time you did. You know, the fear of man brings a snare, the Scripture says. And if we are afraid to confess faith in Christ in spite of all he has done for us, then we need to recognize that we should fear God rather than men. Because if I die without Christ, I go to a lost eternity. And then there were powerful places. They said, well, they're walled cities. We don't know how to conquer a walled city. How on earth can we somehow or other make progress into this land. And then finally they said, they're big giants. The children of Anak are there. So they're big people and we're little people. They're powerful people and we're we only weak. And they're very strong walled cities and we don't know how to take them on. And that's why faith is necessary. You understand? Because it's how big your God is that determines what the outcome is going to be. In fact, I would suggest to each of us this morning that because faith in God is essential, God always sets problems in our way. I know it's part of our human experience, but the problems are there in order to demonstrate that our faith in God is real. And I think sometimes as Christians we, we look at a situation and we say, well, I'm sure I can handle that. And then maybe three months down the line we begin to recognize I'm not doing too well with this. And then sometimes we'll say to the Lord, Lord, I need your intervention in this. And in a very peculiar series of events, the, God, the Lord will resolve the situation in a way which, which, in which you and I couldn't have thought of. We'll see that as this story develops. Because God does things his way so that we can trust him to do things his way. Now, I find it strangely significant that our generation uses one song more frequently than any other song at funerals. And I'm sure you know this. The song that's most 
news at funerals in our generation as Frank Sinatra's rendering of I Did It My Way. And that's exactly what's wrong with society and our world. We want to do it our way. God's way doesn't count anymore. You know, we know better than God. We know how the world was not created, don't we? You know, the whole thinking of man gets so skewed because a God who is powerful enough to create is eliminated from their thinking because that gets too close to the bone. Because if God created man, then as man I am answerable to God. And so we eliminate God from our thinking so we don't have to be answerable to anybody. And then we can say, I did it my way, and I die in my sin, and I go to hell. And this message is very solemn this morning because the challenge to my heart afresh is, am I going to trust God for tomorrow? Am I prepared to walk with him tomorrow, wherever he happens to lead me? And then you'll notice this fellow Caleb stands up. Very interesting study in himself. His story is completed further on in the book of Joshua. Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should, go on, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. We haven't got the wherewithal, but we have our God, and we have our God's promise. Therefore, because God has said it, we can do it. Now look what follows. Another but. Verse 31. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack these people. They are stronger than we are. They were absolutely right. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they'd explored, saying, The land we explored devours those living in it. Where did that come from? You talk about an interpretation of what you see and making it apply to a situation that it doesn't apply to. The land eats up the people. All the people we saw there, you say, Hold on a minute. You saw some of the children of Anak, and they're the only giants in the land. But suddenly, all the people we saw there of great size. I'm just thinking that. So you make a supposition, and we say we can't do it because our perspective of ourselves, because we are so weak, helps us to recognize we can't do it. And that's a great starting point to bring God into the equation. But they don't do that, these ten spies. We saw the children of the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And then this little addenda, and we look the same to them. So you extrapolate the facts to prove a case which is wrong. You see what you see, and then turn it on its head to make an excuse of not doing what God wants. And so we come into chapter 14, which is the main emphasis, emphasis, emphasis that I want to place this morning. That night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the people, all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt. If only we had died in Egypt. I've been better than this. Or in this desert. And then they asked this question. And I want to leave this in our minds this morning. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword. 
Why is the Lord? Hold on a minute. Who has said that the Lord's going to let you fall by the sword? Who put that notion into your head? And often whenever you and I are in communication with the Lord and we're talking to him about the various situations in our lives, we'll say, why is the Lord allowed this to happen to me? Why shouldn't it happen to us? Because if, you remember the verse we looked at last Sunday evening? If God be for us, who can be against us? It's having God in the situation, in the circumstance, that brings the reality of faith to bear. This, faith is not an abstract, you know, it's not something I say, well, I'll trust the Lord and I'll go to heaven. That's not what it's about. It's trusting the Lord so that he can deal with my situations. First of all, dealing with my sin and bringing me on ca- into contact to Him, into contact with him through the one who died for my sin. And I have to allow him, as I trust him by faith, to do what he chooses to do in my living. Not to tell him what he's going to do, which is what these people are saying here. Why is the Lord? Why is the Lord bringing us to this land to let us fall by the sword? And then extrapolate that and say our wives and children will be taken as plunder. And God isn't mentioned in all of their discourse. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? He said you'd rather die in Egypt. Why didn't you stay there instead of coming out with Moses? And there's some people who want to die in Egypt who don't want to have anything to do with a living faith which changes their life and changes their circumstance and changes their focus and changes their mode of living and changes everything about them. And I don't understand it because my life was a mess before I came to Christ. Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, the son of Nun, Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, Listen, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey. will give it to us. Only don't rebel against the Lord. And don't be afraid of the people of the land because we can have them for breakfast. Sorry, we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid of them. Why are you not a Christian this morning? And if we are believers, why are we so afraid? I'm talking about myself. Why are we so afraid half the time? My dear dad, who died just short of his 98th birthday, said to me on one occasion, and I mentioned this recently, Son, I never, never worry about things I can't alter. I never worry about things I can't alter. And in my simple way, I began to think about all the things I worried about and thought to myself, I can't alter any of them, you know. So I said to my father a little while later, I said, you don't worry about it very much. He said, you're right. He said, because most of the things I would worry about, I can't alter. You have to trust. You understand that this is, this is not a fallback position. This is a, a foremost position to come to the point where I recognize I really can trust him. 
trust him with my life. I can trust him with my business. I can trust him with my thinking. I can trust him with everything, as long as I truly recognize who he is. And that's what Caleb and Joshua are saying to the people here. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land. You're looking for new leaders? Let him lead you. He will lead us into that land, a land full of milk and honey. And will give it to us. But don't rebel against the Lord. Because you have nowhere else to go. You know, you don't come to the Lord. What else are you going to do with your life? If you don't come to faith in him, if you don't commit your life to him, what are you going to do with it? I don't know of anyone, if you're here this morning, please speak to me afterwards. I don't know of anyone who hasn't made a mess of their life without Christ. I know that's a challenge. But if you can come to me honestly and say, you know, all of my life has been perfect. It's worked out absolutely as I intended. I've never had any regrets. I've never done anybody any wrong. See me afterwards, will you? Because you're the first. And it's all this question of of somehow or other recognizing and holding the Lord distant from the immediacy of our living, which is the cause of the heartache and despair that we have in our country at this time. Their protection is gone. The Lord is with us. So don't be afraid of them. Get the perspective right. Recognize who God truly is, and don't be afraid of those. And then you have another but. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. But they're only telling the truth. So why do people stone people who tell them the truth? Why did the Jews stone Stephen in a later generation? Because they didn't want to hear the truth. The Bible says they covered their ears and started throwing stones at him. But it doesn't alter the fact of the truth. Understand? Because I don't believe that God can do it doesn't mean that God can't do it. And our problem is that we get all illogical about this. And somehow you think, well, I do, if I don't believe in God, he doesn't exist. That's, you know, what's that about? Of course he exists. Give us this day our daily bread. The whole assembly talked about stoning them. And then you have this phrase. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. They didn't believe that God would intervene. You understand? They were determining their own future. We'll go back to Egypt. Or why didn't you let us die in the desert? But when they get to this point of stoning those who are telling the truth, the Lord intervenes. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the miraculous signs I performed among them? We're going to close with that this morning. Why? Why? Why do we treat God with contempt? And you say, I don't treat him with contempt. You don't believe in him. Is that not a contemptuous action? Why do these people treat me with contempt? How do you how do they 
treat him with contempt, how long will they refuse to believe in me? In spite of all the miraculous signs I performed among them. The very reason that they're on the edge of Canaan is because God brought them out of Egypt. It was God who opened the Red Sea. It was God who brought the armies of Egypt to nothing. It was all down to him, and they had all seen it. But in spite of seeing it all, they did not believe in him. The Lord Jesus told a parable once, and he said a story about two men. And one died and was sheltered in Abraham's bosom, and the other died and found himself in torment. And he cried out to God and said, God, I want you to uh, send Lazarus back to my friends and and get them to tell them that uh, they should believe, lest they also come to this place of torment. And the Lord says, neither would they believe the one was raised from the dead. Remember where I started this morning? This whole question of recognizing the resurrected Christ, recognizing the truth of the resurrection, recognizing that the church can't exist if Jesus be not raised from the dead. And yet we have millions of people today who don't believe in Jesus Christ, even though... He was raised from the dead. I mean, I cannot be a Christian unless Christ lives in me. Every Christian you meet is a living proof that Christ has been raised from the dead. And yet we can still refuse to believe because we're an illogical people. Because Satan has blinded our minds in case we believe, in case we begin to trust How long? How long? Dear friend of mine I used to sing with in a quartet, Johnny McFerrin, 33 years old. He goes to hear Billy Graham preach in Windsor Park in Belfast. And he meets someone when he's on the way out from that particular auditorium. About 20,000 people were there. And somebody said to him, Johnny, are you a Christian yet? And Johnny said, no, I'm not, but I'm trying to be. And his friend said to him, just in passing, he said, stop trying and trust. Stop trying and trust. And three days later, Johnny McFerrin got down by his bedside and trusted in Christ. A recognition of the living Savior who died for your sin and mine. How long will these people cease to believe in spite of all the miraculous signs that I have done? Let's pray together, shall we? Father, in your gift we pray that you will give us faith to believe. You will grant us grace to understand the reality that we are saved through grace by faith. Save us from ourselves, Father. We're all silly people in many ways. 
don't think things through very well. We pray that we'll be persuaded by that which you have shown to us in the Lord Jesus. You help us to recognize perhaps for the first time this morning that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and raised again the third day according to the Scriptures. Father, in your mercy, speak into our hearts and draw us to yourself through Christ our Lord. Amen. We'll sing our